So, 55 times in the book of Matthew, Matthew quotes the Old Testament. 55. Now, I don't know about you, but out of context, I don't really have a gauge to know whether or not that's abnormal. So, in order to put it in context, let me tell you that 65 times is the number of times all the other Gospels quote the Old Testament combined. So Matthew, in his one testament of Christ's words and work, quotes the Old Testament 55 times. All the other Gospels, Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Mark, Luke, and John combined quote the Old Testament 65 times. And if you include allusions to Old Testament passages, Matthew references the Old Testament about twice as often as each of the other Gospels. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Matthew, when he writes, every major scene is punctuated, every major conclusion is reinforced with Old Testament support. Now why, why do I mention all of this? Here's the point. Two things. You cannot understand the book of Matthew if you don't understand how Matthew is using the Old Testament. It is, it is I think, impossible to follow his argument well if, if you're not grasping what he means to do when he's quoting the Old Testament. And second, if you want to make sense of the Old Testament and how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, Matthew is a great teacher because he does it all the time. So what I want to do today is I want to explore how Matthew is reading the Old Testament. And then I want to learn how to follow his example. There are very few tools we can give you as pastors more important than the tools you can take to the Scriptures to understand what God has said and what that means. Does it make sense? Matthew here, by so intentionally cultivating a a narrative of Christ's words and work that's punctuated at every point with the Old Testament text, Matthew is not just telling us about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Matthew is telling us how to read the Bible. And what I want to do this morning is to follow his eyes to the Old Testament and to learn his patterns. So in order to do that, I want you to turn to Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. Hold up your Bible when you're there. I'm going to start in 11 to give us a bit of context. And going into the house, the wise men saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. 
a voice was heard in Rama, and weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Okay. So this passage pivots around two quotations of the Old Testament. The first one is Hosea 11.1. And the second one is Jeremiah 31.15. I'm just going to take them in part, one at a time. And then we're going to try and draw conclusions to, to identify how Matthew's actually reading these passages. So, in order to understand how he's interpreting Hosea 11, we need to read Hosea 11. So, turn with me, if you will, to Hosea 11. And we're going to start exactly where... Matthew starts in verse 1. Okay, let me read it to you. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them to feed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consuming the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Okay. Okay. So I want to go back to the passage for a moment. Very simple story. The wise men, if you remember, were initially asked by Herod, go, go find this new baby king. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I too can worship him. Right? Right? So you have this behind the scenes, this, this tyrannous, oppressive king. And he's tricking these wise men in this feigned allegiance to the coming Messiah. Well, God is moving to protect His Son. And as soon as the wise men worship and give gifts... They're told in a dream, don't go that way. Don't go back to Herod. And so they flee a different way. When Herod discovers this, he panics. And he's angry. And so what does he do? He sends his soldiers to slaughter the children of Bethlehem. Now, in order to protect his son, God sends an angel to appear to Joseph and says, go, flee to Egypt. Because Herod is about to to seek this child's life. And so he leaves. And he doesn't come back until Herod dies. And, And that is the moment where Matthew says, this is a fulfillment of Hosea 11, 1. 
Now that should raise questions, right? Why? Because Hosea 11, 1 reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. Okay, did Jesus go away? Right? Did Jesus keep sacrificing to Baal? No. So, if, if you're doing diligence to read the actual citation, warning flags should start firing. What's going on? Right? What, what is going on here? It's a good question with good answers. First, in order to answer that question, I want to talk about the shape of this story. Okay, I think there are three major features to the shape of this passage in Matthew. One, there's an exodus from Egypt. There's an exodus from Egypt. Joseph is told, go to Egypt to save this child's life. And as soon as the danger has passed, then come back from Egypt. And every Israeli who's reading this is thinking, what does this remind me of? There's danger. There's danger. So the, this Israel's son is taken to Egypt. And then when that danger is lifted, he's brought out from Egypt. Right? There's, there's an exodus happening here. Okay? And that exodus is being driven by the treachery of an oppressive king. Herod is behind the scenes plotting the death of the Messiah. That's the primary driver of this plot. And yet, throughout, God is faithful to protect His Son. Now, before we analyze the shape of Hosea, I want to make a quick note. The prophets often refer to Israel in in several names. Okay? And there's this poetic... Uh, use of terms like Jacob, terms like Ephraim, and terms like Rachel. If you're not familiar with the story of the people of Israel, that can get confusing. Because as you're reading this poem about the, the nature of Israel's exile and God's, God's lament over their sin and God's desire for, for, for mercy, right? Like as you read this, if you're seeing this pointed in four or five different directions because you're assuming these names mean different things, it's going to be just crazy confusing. This happened to me for years before someone made this clarification. Uh, Just to pull the curtain back a bit, Jacob is the name of Israel. Okay, Jacob was the father of all the tribes of Israel. Okay, And later on in Jacob's life, he has this interesting moment, which you've got to study because it's fascinating uh, and a little strange, um, where he wrestles with God. And God blesses him with the name Israel. That's how we get the name Israel. Israel and Jacob are uh, referring to the same person. Now, the reason I mention this is because sometimes when God is referring to Israel, He uses the term Jacob. That's got a... A multitude of significances, if that's even a word, um, one of which being Jacob, is, it, it means deceit, right? So when, when God's referring to His people as Jacob, He's referring to His people as, as sons of deceit, right? But it also calls to memory all of the sweet promises made to Jacob at Bethel, Right? All of the promises of Abraham are, 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 are perpetuated through Jacob. And some of the most beautiful moments in the story of Genesis fall upon Jacob. So you get this host of, of, of meanings that sort of arise when God refers to His people as Jacob. But also, sometimes, the prophets refer to Jacob as weeping when he sees the sin of his sons and his daughters. Right? And you see this too with Rachel. Rachel is one of Jacob's wife, wives. 
Um, and, and Rachel's often sort of included in the prophets as, as, as this ancient matriarch of Israel weeping when she sees her sons and daughters depart from God. And she sees, she sees the, the consequences of sin unfold. So you have these references perpetually in the prophets. You need to keep this in mind. And the other thing is Ephraim. Ephraim is the grandson of Jacob and Rachel. And Ephraim is often referred to... Israel is often referred to as Ephraim. So keep these in mind and don't get distracted. So when, so when we see in Hosea 11... Um, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? God is talking to the same group, His covenant people. And He's using different names to recall all of His covenant faithfulness in the law. Does it make sense? We tracking? Okay. So that's the quick note. Now, I tell you all this uh, in order to uh, highlight what I think is the shape of this prophecy. All right. This prophecy begins with the Exodus. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Exodus, he's actually referring to. God is actually referring to the Exodus. It says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And then he just describes how even though he's faithful and calling them faithfully to draw near to Him, they are further and further departing from Him in idolatry. Right? So at some point in this prophecy, God says, fine, go. Let me read you. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to Me. So you have this picture of God calling His people to return and they refuse so he says, fine, I hand you over to an oppressive king. Right? And yet, this sweet moment, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. His mercy. Mercy being poured out in the midst of their being surrendered to a treacherous king. So what do we have here? We have the passage that features three major moments. Exodus from Egypt, treachery of an oppressive king, and God's faithful protection of His Son. And then we have this prophecy. And the shape of this prophecy is in, in the same shape. Exodus from Egypt, treachery of the Assyrian king, God's faithful protection of His Son. So you can see here, you can begin to see how the shape of this story might remind Matthew of the Hosea prophecy. Right? Matthew is, is reflecting on, on this treacherous action. The sword of a, of a corrupt king slaughtering the sons of Israel in, in order to stifle the work of God. But God sends His Son to Egypt and then calls His Son back forth from Egypt. And all of a sudden, Matthew's thinking, Hosea 11, I remember this. I remember something like this. Okay? And he, he says, fulfilled though. Yeah, he, he can see, I think, the shape of these stories being similar. But how does he make the claim that this passage is fulfilled in Jesus. I think a good principle to bring to the, to the text is this. When you see that two passages have a similar shape, you should start asking how they're different. Make sense? Two passages share a similar shape, similar features, similar events, similar characters. You start asking what's different about these two things. Okay. In both passages, Exodus is evidence of God's mercy. And both passages highlight God's protection of His Son. What are the core distinctions, though? Matthew is referring to Jesus. And this prophecy in Hosea is referring to Israel. 
So here's where these, these distinctions land, right? Israel earns the wrath of God, but is promised mercy. And Matthew here, by saying this scripture is fulfilled in Christ, is saying Jesus bears the wrath of God, fulfilling the promise of mercy. Do you see this? Israel earns the wrath of God. That's what we see unfolding in Hosea 11. Israel's earns the wrath of God, but God in His compassion promises mercy. And, and Matthew looks back to the shape of this passage in Hosea and says, yes, yes, that mercy, that mercy is fulfilled in Christ. Does it make sense? Okay. Let's keep moving. How is Matthew reading Jeremiah 31? Jeremiah 31.15 I thought when I first read this that this was a relatively odd moment in the text. So you say, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or, un- or under according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fu- then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping over her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah 31. Turn there now if you would. Jeremiah 31. I'm going to start at the beginning this time. The beginning of the book. Not book. (laughs) Chapter. You guys are like, he's doing an hour and ten minute sermon again. (laughs) Sorry, I saw the panic in your eyes. Um, All right, I'll start reading. 31 verse 1. At that time declares the Lord. Okay, stop. Okay, stop. Try not to start reading out of context. Do you know what I mean? Like if you start, to, if you're searching for the meaning of a passage and you start that passage and there's a reference to a prior passage, just go there. It's going to be worth your time. I promise. So this starts at that time, declares the Lord. I need to know what time in order to understand how to situate this passage in its context. So at that time, what time? Well, I'll tell you what I did. To figure out the answer to that question, I just turn a page back. One, one page back. Okay? I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah 30. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a Man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break the yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. At what time? That time. That's the context that we situate Jeremiah 31. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be My people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace 
in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I will continue my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. What scandalous words, O virgin Israel. If you've read any of this book, you know she is no virgin. Keep reading. Let's skip down to 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me. And I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And I was instructed. I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear child? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him and I will surely have mercy on him. Okay, so in the passage in Matthew 2, we saw, I think, three major features. One, the sword of an oppressive king strikes Israel. And we see the survivors weeping over their murdered children. And yet, through it all, like bookends on the front end of this passage, on the back end of this passage, is hope in the shepherd king. Read it. Matthew. Just read Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Right before this passage. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And how does this passage end? Jesus returns to Israel to begin His rescue mission. So the sword of an oppressive king strikes Israel. Survivors weep over their murdered children and and there's hope in the shepherd king who shines through the despair. I think the prophecy shares that same structure. We have in this prophecy these moments. Beautiful Heavy moments where Jacob and Rachel are seen weeping over the lost lives of their children, falling in in exile. They're they're just weeping. I don't know if there's a harder passage to read. In 30, how does it start? Can a man bear a child? Why then do I see... Every man with when his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, every face is turned pale. Alas, that day is so great, there's none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob. I can't imagine distress like this. I can't. On the ground, holding your stomach pale over the loss of your children. And then we get this this, this weeping, is this vignette of weeping that sort of starts the prophecy and punctuates the middle of the prophecy is, is Rachel now. So we see Jacob weeping over his grandchildren. And we see 
Rachel weeping over her grandchildren. A voice is heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Why? Why are they no more? Because they were murdered in exile. They were murdered. They fled to the nations and the nations did what nations do. And yet hope in the shepherd king shines through the despair. Let me read it again because it's so beautiful. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. Let me back up one verse because because this little phrase tagged on to to the portrait of Jacob weeping, holding his stomach, pale on the ground, weeping over his slaughtered children. Listen, it says, Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds. And foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God. And who? David, their king. David, their king. Whom I will raise up for them. Tell me the Bible's not about Jesus. So both passages reflect on the pain of conquered Israel. And both passages stir hope in a shepherd king. What are the core distinctions? The prophecy says David is coming. And Matthew says the son of David has arrived. The prophecy says that day... The day God's promised for centuries, that day is is coming. Prophecy says that that day is coming sometime. Matthew says that day is here. That day is here. The Son of David is here. And he survived by the might and protection of God, the treachery of that wicked king. So we have in this passage two prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. One, Israel is promised mercy through wrath. Jesus brings mercy by bearing wrath. That's how Hosea is fulfilled in Jesus. Two, the promise of a better day and a shepherd king is comfort to weeping Israel. Jesus is the shepherd king and His arrival signals the better day. That's why this passage is here. You know this passage is being read by people who remember the day that Herod slaughtered the sons of Bethlehem. We all ask at some point in our lives, how could you allow such a thing to happen? Right? We all despair with Jacob and Rachel. Right? This is here because that day has arrived. The day of comfort. The day of David the king. Okay. So Matthew read the Scriptures and he saw these passages and he just knew that they were fulfilled in Jesus. How? I mean, aside from the work of inspiration. There is a school of thought that says... That you can't read the Old Testament the way the apostles did because the apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. So we should, we should restrain our attempt to, to understand the Bible as being fulfilled in Jesus explicitly to those moments where the apostles pointed it out. Explicitly cited a passage. Let me tell you. When Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, 
I don't think he was limiting that to just mere behaviors of some type. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Um, how do we read the Bible like this? I'm going to give you some, some answers to that question. These answers are not complete, but I think they'll help. First, step one. Work from the premise that the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. There are people out there who are campaigning to tell you that the Old Testament is not about Jesus. They're wrong. Let me tell you how I know. Luke 24. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But come on, you should. You know you want to. Luke 24. The day Jesus rose, two of his disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. I love that our king is like this. I love it. I love it. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's cool. (laughs) And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just like the women had said. But him they did not see. Listen to this. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And you're like, okay, well, prophets maybe. Maybe it's just the prophets but we got a whole lot of Bible left if you just separate the, the prophets. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Did He leave any room for doubt? Is there any more ways to say the, all of it? The whole thing? Every, every jot and tittle? No. Beginning with Moses. That's where the Bible starts. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures. So, you got to start there. you got to start there or else you're not going to read the Bible rightly. Okay? Now, step two. Think in characters and shapes and story arcs rather than merely verses or paragraphs. I, I think we all had to read Shakespeare in, in high school. If you haven't, that's a shame. He actually reads pretty well. So I like the way he writes. Um, but uh, I, I think uh, English literature hasn't done so well to represent prophecy. Because prophecy is more than merely three witches over a boiling cauldron saying, one day this king will do this. and that, Right? We have this like two-dimensional vision of prophecy that is just not biblical. What I mean is shadows. The biblical picture of prophecy is that of shadows, or types, if you will. We've talked about them here for a while now. David. 
the, the figure of David as he ascends to the throne is a shadow of Christ's kingdom, right? You can't, you can't find that in one verse. Well, you look for the one verse that, that includes all that, has, that the Bible has to say about who David is and how he's like Jesus. You can't. It's, it's more than that, right? We talked about the tabernacle in Hebrews and the sacrifices in Hebrews. Find the one verse that says the sacrifice. The one verse that fully encapsulates all that the sacrifices have to say and mean about Jesus. You can't. You've got to think bigger and broader. Think in shapes and characters and events rather than single verses. Okay, step three. It's very hard to do step two if you're not reading big chunks. I, I'm so grateful for the efforts of many uh, in our evangelical American history to try and find ways to bring Bible study to every home. And there's a lot of these, right? But some of the best intentions have led to some unforeseen consequences. For instance, some Bible studies that I was handed have you read two verses or three verses, and then you read a couple paragraphs of this guy's commentary on these two or three verses. That's really not how books work. You're like, set aside the Bible. That's really not how books work. And it's certainly not how the Bible works. So, find a way to read bigger, in bigger chunks. I recommend audiobooks. To almost everybody who I talk to about reading the Bible, we're often in cars. Maybe the last eight months have been an exception. My car died in my garage because I hadn't used it in three months. I'm not kidding. Um, but we're often in the car, driving to Dallas, whatever. Do get an audiobook. The, the book, read slowly, is only 75 hours long. Calculate your, your trips. Like, you can get through the Bible five times, probably. Read the Bible in chunks. You'll start to see the shape of the story. You'll start to see the shape of the story arc. You'll start to see the shape of events. And it's going to start reminding you of Christ and His work and His promises. That's not coincidence. Got it? Tracking? Okay. And step four. Best to stick to three rules. Um... If you have questions about these, come see me. I've talked about this in the past. Uh, if you want, you can go search typology uh, in our sermon series uh, on Samuel. I had a whole, whole sermon on typology. A couple of you fell asleep. Um, best to th- stick to three rules. One biblical warrant. What I don't mean is You need somebody to explicitly make this connection in the New Testament by citing this passage and saying, this passage is about Jesus. But what I do mean is that the Bible has its own building sort of key to the most significant themes, and you know them because they're just repeated over and over again. Right? When you start reading in Genesis, you start to see repetition of certain ideas and themes. Once you meet David, you don't ever stop hearing about David. David is repeated even throughout the king's narrative. He's repeated throughout the prophets. It's not a leap to make the claim that David wasn't intended to be a standalone narrative for moral improvement, right? Tabernacle, temple, sacrifice. Like these are building themes in the, in the Bible and they, they terminate on Jesus. It's best to look for those building themes before you start to make claims about a passage being fulfilled in Jesus. Probably not a good... If you just find a random uh, story and you like it and it reminds you of Jesus, but nobody ever again in the Bible references that story, Old Testament or New Testament, think twice. Make sense? Second is correspondence. That's kind of what we did today. If you see the shape, it's very similar. If you see repetition of themes or ideas or characters, you start triggering. 
People talk a big game about literary theory and literary scholarship. But the big secret to literature is like the guys who are... Uh, I, I studied with a Melville expert. He wrote his dissertation on Moby Dick. He saw all sorts of things, but do you know why? Because he'd read that book like 500 times, right? So he could say, oh yeah, this reminds me of this passage here. Like, and he could see the connections that Melville was building from, from the first page to the last page. So the way you start to see without searching, the way you start to see for correspondence is you just read a lot. Just keep reading. You will not waste time reading the Bible. It's the one thing that you cannot waste time on. And prayer. Well, there's more than one thing. But I'm hyperbolic sometimes. <laughs> and the last principle is escalation. What this means is, if the shape is similar and it reminds you of a, a portion of Jesus' life or work or actions or the life or work of actions of the, of the church, you should see a lesser than, greater than relationship. Does that make sense? A lesser than, greater than relationship. For instance, Solomon, right? The son of David. His kingdom was a kingdom of peace and wealth, right? The, 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 king, the kingdom had never been so brilliant. And then you see these promises of Christ's kingdom, Christ the son of David. You start to see these shapes are very similar. Solomon fell into idolatry. Christ never failed his people. That's escalation, right? That's escalation. Okay. So those are your four tools. Stick them in your tool belt and go read the Bible. But I can't step away from this passage without very quickly giving you some application. We can't just blow over this passage. It was beautiful. First, Israel has promised mercy through wrath. Jesus brings mercy by bearing wrath. What does this mean for you? You earned wrath. You earned wrath. You are a sinner. You have failed. You probably did it twice today, at least. You have earned the wrath of God, but you were promised mercy in the Scriptures. Jesus offers you that mercy by bearing God's wrath on your behalf. We should never assume that everyone in this room is a believer. Run to Jesus because He's got mercy for you and grace. And when you fail and you've already been baptized into Christ and you're already enjoying the grace of God and, you've, and you sin, you just run to Jesus still. We don't ever stop needing the Gospel. Second, the promise of a better day and a shepherd king is comfort to exiled Israel. Jesus is the shepherd king and His arrival signals that better day. Well, you are in exile here. As comfortable as you may think this place is, you're not the only generation that wanted to stay in the wilderness. Do you know what I mean? Here there is darkness and pain at times. Sometimes paralyzing pain. I'm so grateful for Hebrews. I'm so grateful for that message yesterday because it meets us in moments, not yesterday, last week, meets us in moments of pain. When you encounter the valley, remember that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus signals a better day. The kingdom of God is at hand. Amen? One last thing. I want to read you two passages very quickly. One's from Hosea and one's from Jeremiah. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And then Jeremiah is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. 
Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. I think in circles like ours, we can lose that. We have this brilliant passion to wrap our mind around the character and words and work of God. Praise God for that. But sometimes in our theological nuance, we find ways to sterilize and abstract God's love. Stop that. Stop doing that. I think this is a ridiculous analogy. Forget it if it doesn't help. Do you remember Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? The very end of the movie, they're t- each, like the, the, it's a ridiculous film, and at the end, they're trying to symbolize what like a glorious, peaceful, transcendent culture is like. And you know what they can come up with? It's, it's three people standing like 15 feet above all of the others, Going like this. Right? And like in in an attempt to articulate that glory or whatever, this is where you get the big be excellent to one another. Right? It's a ridiculous analogy and I'm sorry for it. However, I think as we're trying to wrap our mind around the God who is all glorious and the God who is all knowing, And the God who is all just, sometimes we can abstract Him from His personality. When you think of God redeeming sinners, if you don't think of the father of the prodigal son running down the streets to embrace his filthy boy, then you're, you're missing something. Go back. Read more. God loves you like that. God loves you like that. Listen to Him. My heart yearns for Him. We feel the discipline of the Lord. Hear that in that moment of darkness. My Therefore, my heart yearns for Him. As often as I speak against Him, I do remember Him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for Him. I will surely have mercy on Him, declares the Lord. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Make a place in your heart and mind for the God of compassion who loves you. Amen? Amen. Trey, will you lead us in prayer, please? This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.